Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. As always, I like to start the show by thanking all of you who are listening out there for being with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're swinging back and forth, as most of you who listen to the show with some regularity, between the uh, political uh, a core mission of our show from the very start seven years ago to talking about uh, the coronavirus and its impact on the state. Uh, and of course, the two intersect in many cases, and politics and coronavirus are not that far apart in uh, many of the uh, topics that we uh, look at. Uh, today, given that we have now reached 100,000 deaths, a really terrible, terrible uh, symbol of the devastating impact that the virus has had on this country, we are going to take a deeper look at where we stand here in the state of Georgia and and basically what's going on across the country as well. Um, and then tomorrow we're back to looking at campaign 2020. The races that people are going to be voting for have already started voting for on the June 9th primary ballot. So with all that in mind, um, I'm glad to welcome as our regular, my regular Thursday partner on this show, Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, as always, it's great to have you with me. Good to be with you, Bill. I, I always look forward to Thursday morning for, for a chance to be on the show, and uh, especially today, because I think we have a couple of really great guests, and this is going to be a, a just a super show to kind of dig into the pandemic again and understand where we're going next. Yeah, and by the way, I know that your team at the AJC, the people who work for you, are always glad for your Thursday appearances because it gives them one hour uh, without your having to supervise them. So they're grateful that we do the show with you every Thursday as well. <laughs> yeah, they have been doing such a right. terrific job. And I don't. Uh, I wonder if it's yeah, a coincidence that we're not in the office with me overseeing things. But uh, <laughs> well, you know, our uh, yeah, they have, and our GPB news staff has been doing uh, outstanding work as well. So, all right, let's bring in our uh, uh, two experts today. We're going to welcome back to the show. I'm glad to say, Dr. Harry Hyman. Uh, Dr. Hyman is a clinical associate professor in the Division of Health Management, Health Management and Policy at the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Dr. Hyman, welcome to the show. A lot of your work focuses on um, looking at health policy and health equity. And the last time you were on the show, we talked a good deal about the pandemic and its disproportionate impact on African-Americans. So today, it's really a pleasure to have you back to talk about uh, the broader issues involved in the coronavirus. How are you doing, Dr. Hyman? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me back, Bill. Sure. And we're welcoming for the first time from the Task Force for Global Health, which I've said on this show before to many people, certainly the public health community knows the task force incredibly well. But to many, you know, many people, Georgians out there uh, who aren't familiar with the public health community, Task Force for Global Health is one of the most important uh, public health organizations in the country, if not the world um, and today we welcome Dr. Mark McKinley, who is the director for the Center of Vaccine Equity. Uh, Dr. McKinley, you oversee the task forces, all their vaccine-related work, your vaccine-related work, 
including increasing access to the vaccines for the flu in developing countries, which is where the task force does a great deal of its work, and also, importantly, uh, working with countries on preparing for the next uh, pandemic. Fair introduction, Dr. McKinley? Yes, very fair. Thank you very much, Bill. And in addition to that, we also work on hepatitis elimination, and uh, we have uh, also work in polio eradication. Yeah, you've you've been very involved in the effort to make polio one of the only diseases in the world to be eradicated, and uh, you're coming closer and closer all the time, aren't you? Yes, we are. Uh, it would be the second uh, virus after smallpox to be eradicated, but of course, COVID is having its impact there as well, as a lot of the activities had to be uh, uh, ter- you know slowed down at the moment. One of the best shows I've ever done at Georgia Public Broadcasting was a show with Dr. Bill Fagey about the campaign mm-hmm. to eliminate smallpox, which he led. It's a it's a thrilling story, and at some point we're going to uh, replay it when we have a day uh, to uh, put it back on the air. But anyhow, Dr. McKinley, thank you very much for being with us today. All right. I want to open uh, with, with a very simple question. Uh, Dr. Hyman, I'll, I'll start with you. Um the state, Governor Kemp has now reopened the state largely to business. He's going to be holding a news conference later this afternoon, and one of the expectations is, by the way, we'll carry it on GPB Radio and on our social media platforms, He, his people are talking about he wants to maybe further open things up. We're not quite sure whether that means bars uh, and other venues that have so far, performance venues perhaps, that have been closed down. But, but Dr. Hyman, I think one of the questions that those of us who are trying to figure out this bewildering landscape, are, we, don't, we can't get to a bottom, the bottom of is, has opening the state of Georgia had a negative impact on the spread of the virus? We see the figures for new cases going up, but... How do we know whether that's because there's more testing in place than ever before, whether it is contact among people who are now starting to circulate more freely? How do you watch something like that, Dr. Hyman? Yeah, I think it's, it's actually interesting that I'm on Political Rewind having the conversation because, to your point, um, the management of coronavirus uh, in this country and, and the messaging and narratives about it uh, are very much filtered through a, a political filter. Uh, and, and candidly, from, from a month ago, um, once the governor decided he wanted to open the state, the, the, the messaging and the narrative has very much been about why this is the right thing for Georgia um, and, 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 and why it's not going to have a significant impact. And even, you know, it was, it was actually pretty stunning a month ago when Dr. Toomey acknowledges acknowledge that we hadn't met any of the gating criteria put out by the White House to say you're ready to start reopening things, um, and also acknowledge at that time that we were, quote, looking at many things, um, not just the data. Um, and I think, uh, unfortunately, that, 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 that's kind of been the modus um, since that time. I think if you, if you look at the data, it's also confusing, uh, in part because um, there have been a number of um, data glitches from the Department of Public Health. Um, where they've either misrepresented data uh, or done things that data science, scientists and biostatisticians um, would not approve of, like mixing antibody tests um, with tests for current infection. 
uh, finally acknowledged yesterday, uh, totaling about 78,000. But to answer your question, um, I'm, I'm very concerned um, about the trajectory we're on in our state. Um, if, if you look at the Department of Public Health's um, uh, tr tracking of new cases, um, there is an upward trend. Um, and, uh, you know, I think some of that upward trend may be due to the fact that we're expanding testing, but we've been rapidly expanding testing for four to six weeks. And that upward trend has just started in the past 14 days. Uh, Dr. Hyman, so Kevin Riley here from the AJC. Um, uh, of course, we uh, have spent an awful lot of effort. Uh, our, we have a group of data journalists at the AJC who have looked and looked and looked at the data and, and uh, worked hard to represent it and keep an eye on what the Department of Public Health has reported. And, and so we know it's, 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 a demanding, uh, it's a demanding thing, and, and statistics can be misrepresented or misunderstood. Um, we hear from so many readers now who are either involved in statistics in their work uh, of another nature outside public health or just sort of become, you know, interested in this. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, though, from your perspective, if we go down to the very uh, – uh, front lines of collecting statistics in Georgia. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Because as I've dug into this and talked to people uh, around the state, it, it becomes clear that that's part of the challenge, right? Is that how good is the system that generates that data? And I know there's been some uh, discussion about this at a, at a national level. So as someone who works, you know, in policy and is an expert in this, um, what do we have in Georgia on the front lines, and what should we have on the front lines? Well, thanks for that question, because it's a really critical question, because the, the, the analysis is, it can only be as good as the underlying data, and, and there are um, data quality problems both nationally and in Georgia. So, so one, one fundamental question and problem with the data is how, how, how representative it is um, of the population in Georgia. So, so for example, if we've doubled the number of tests that we do, um, are we doubling that mostly in the metro area? Um, are we doubling it in a broadly representative way across the state? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that because that, that information is not given to me. And then we have this um, amalgam, if you will, of um, state testing sites, um, private testing uh, in physicians' offices and private labs, um, uh, a range of other drive-in testing sites, um, many using a different methodology. Um, and then to me, what is most troubling is we know, and Bill alluded to it in his introduction, we know that this pandemic is disproportionately impacting low-income workers and communities of color. Um, one of the primary barriers to testing is access to a private car. The vast majority of testing sites around the state are drive-in sites. So that means if you don't have a private car, um, then, then you may not have access to testing. So there have been studies now coming out showing that, in fact, those communities disproportionately impacted are the ones with the greatest barriers to testing. So there, there, there are issues all along that. And the last thing I'll add, again, is that of the um, hundreds of thousands of tests that we've done in Georgia, we know that over the last four to six weeks, we've included in that um, about 78,000 antibody tests. Um, which should not be commingled with, with the acute viral tests because that also gives a, a misleading picture of both how widely testing is available 
uh, and also the, the percent positivity on those tests. So, Dr. McKinley, let me bring you into the conversation. Uh, Dr. Hyman uh, has expressed a concern that uh, we are hearing from any number of public health experts out there, and that's the data. We don't really know enough about the data that we're getting to, to draw a lot of conclusions. But, but so let me go back to my fundamental question, if I may. Um, we know, for example, let me pre- preface it by saying this. Um, we've stopped using the Department of Public Health figures that they put out every day on the air because we're not quite sure what they represent. We do know they had problems, some of which may very well have been just simple mistakes. Uh, Some people think that they've manipulated uh, data uh, for political purposes. We've we don't know whether that's the case or not. But so, for instance, we do know these things. We do know that um, there is a new hotspot in the state of Georgia, Baldwin County, the Milledgeville area, they now have 337 cases, which is like 759 people per 100,000 people. They've had 26 uh, deaths in the county, and this is a county with only 44,500 uh, people in it. So we do know about certain places where the virus has, uh, has accelerated. But again, to go back to the question, Dr. McKinley, There has been so much controversy over Governor Kemp being the first governor in the country to say, let's get back to business. How are we going to measure whether, in fact, he's made a gamble that's turned out well for the state or is just going to be more dangerous for all of us? Okay, well, I would say Dr. Hyman's the best person to answer this question. I'm a virologist, but I can say from my perspective here, uh, seeing any increase right now is concerning. Um, And uh, even though hospitalizations, I think, are down a bit, it's still, I think, it's the trends uh, that uh, we need to watch. Uh, Obviously, as we open up things and more and more people interact, uh, the probability of infection has to go up. I mean, it's just uh, uh, without question. And if, if I can just chime in, Bill, I, you know, I think, unfortunately, it's become this very dichotomized conversation of either we open up and save the economy or we stay closed and, and protect the, the health of the public. Uh, and, and I think that, that those, those are actually aligned goals rather than competitive goals, but it requires controlling the public health pandemic in a way that makes it safe to open up and providing clear um, um, guidance about how to do that in, in a way that's safe. Um, and, and, and I think the, the, the issue from my perspective is not that states don't need to open their, their um, economies. We, we all understand that the social and economic impacts um, are uh, disproportionately impacting the same populations that COVID-19 are. But, but again, by the um, commissioner of, of, of public health's um, own acknowledgement, we still don't have the resources, uh, infrastructure, and workforce in place um, to do an appropriate containment strategy. And I'm talking about um, rapid testing, um, contact tracing, um, and, and containment. And, and that's what needs to be in place to safely open up. Uh, Dr. Hyman, one of the, one of the things that uh, uh, we've had a lot of debate and put a lot of work into at the AJC is 
what is the right statistic to track? In other words, you know, we know there are flaws in the state's reporting. We know there are flaws in the timing of that reporting. We know that um, that at times they revise things. And so we sort of landed on a couple things, including hospitalizations and, and the retransmission of, uh, you know, statistics. So, I mean, I, I'd leave it to you to maybe explain that a little bit to, to listeners and, and just to offer your opinion and as well as Dr. McKinley, if he wants to, on what statistic do you think, like, would you advise people, here's the one to pay attention to? Yeah, I, th- I think that's part of the challenge. Um, um, and I'll apologize ahead for not giving you a, a clear one-sentence answer. I think part of the challenge is um, in a pandemic like this, th- there's not a, a single statistic that tells the whole story. Uh, and, 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 and I think that every statistic needs to be looked at in context. In context. So um, looking at um, death rates um, or looking at number of COVID deaths, um, looking at um, cases and case rates, um, and, and, and looking at um, broader population surveillance of, of COVID-19 is very important. And those are some of the pieces that are missing, by the way. What, what we haven't done in a meaningful way is gone to um, targeted areas across the state and in a um, population health surveillance um, manner actually sampled um, people to get a sense of um, how many people are asymptomatic and have it? How many people are symptomatic and have it? Um, the CDC recently did a um, pilot for a serology study looking at people who've had uh, past disease. Um, those are the kinds of things that need to be looked at together with um, number of cases and death rates and hospitalizations. Um, but the last thing I want to add, though, is that looking at it, looking at, it for, at the state level, you're, you're going to miss a lot of the nuance going on in places like Dougherty County or Hall or Hancock, um, where um, an outbreak in those counties can be very devastating, but not at at a a numeric level impact the state numbers. Dr. McKinley, I want to read you uh, a few sentences from a piece that appeared in the Washington Post this morning and get your response to it, um, uh, uh, because clearly vaccine is an important part of your work. Here's this piece was uh, uh, co-authored by uh, the Post's uh, lead health reporter. Here's what it says. There's a good chance the coronavirus will never go away. Even after a vaccine is discovered and deployed, the coronavirus will likely remain for decades to come circulating among the world's population. Experts call such diseases endemic, stubbornly resisting efforts to stop them out, Stamp them out, think measles, HIV, chickenpox. With so much else uncertain, the persistence of the novel virus is one of the few things we can count on about the future. That doesn't mean the situation will always be as dire. But then she finally goes on to say, people also keep talking of returning to normal. But a future with an enduring coronavirus means that normal no longer exists. Um. Dr. McKinley, there has been so much emphasis put on the importance of developing a vaccine and making it available as quickly as possible. This article suggests that even with a vaccine, this is a virus that's going to stay with us. What's your take on that? Well, uh, number one, obviously, a vaccine is a game changer. And the reason why everyone's spending so much energy on getting one as fast as possible 
But even if you have a vaccine, there are a number of things we don't know, just how much protection you have, how long that protection lasts, whether you can be reinfected, et cetera. So all these things uh, uh, we uh, don't uh, uh, know, obviously, at this point in time. But uh, so that's why we at the Task Force for Global Health are working uh, with CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, to help harmonize the safety evaluation on, uh, in terms of uh, developing these vaccines as quickly as possible and as safely as possible uh, so that we have the best tool possible to control the disease. But the question, will this virus be endemic? Will it still remain around the world? That is, uh, I think it's way too early to tell. I'd be interested in what Dr. Hyman has to say about that. Well, I actually appreciated that, that um, you deferred to me on a question you were uncomfortable with, and I'm happy yeah. to, to, to <laughs> defer to you as a virologist on, on this one. I, I, I think um, I, I, I think your 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 point that um, vaccine is an essential public health tool, but it's not the end all, um, is is a really important one. I, I think people feel like, oh, well, once we have the vaccine, and and vaccinate everybody, everyone will be 100% protected forever. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that's obviously a, 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 a failed a, a fa failed assumption. I think the other thing that gets lost in the conversation, and I'd be uh, curious what your what your uh, pandemic um, planning group um, is, is thinking about is um, the, the whole issue of once we identify one or likely multiple vaccines um, that that have shown to be effective um, against COVID-19, assuming that we get there. And I think again. That we can't, we can't, uh, we can't necessarily make that assumption. Is is the whole issue of of um, production and manufacturing, and, and bring that right. up to a scale um, that that is meaningful for a pandemic that's affecting um, a, a global population. Right. Can I comment on that? Go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, go that's ahead. A really. Really good point, the whole manufacturing. And one of the things that's happening here, uh, given the urgency, is that a lot of uh, effort and money is going into developing manufacturing capabilities, even before we know we have an effective, safe vaccine. So uh, this would normally never be done. You know, companies will go through the phase one, phase two, phase three, and then uh, go through the regulatory process and then start to build their manufacturing capability. Here, it's already started. And, and it has to be started in using a number of different platforms. As you know, there's a standard kind of protein-based vaccines, there's mRNA, DNA vaccines. So each one has different uh, manufacturing uh, technology, but that is all underway already. So Dr. McKinley, uh, uh, again, kind of following up on that, um, again, being a little bit familiar with the, the task force work and, and, and uh, the demands, uh, logistical demands that occur in, in fighting an epidemic or a pandemic, um, what are your thoughts about how well the United States and the world is prepared for this? Because as we saw early on in this pandemic, I mean, it wasn't that masks and PPE couldn't necessarily be made. They couldn't be made fast enough. And then there was this massive distribution problem. I mean, how did you get it to the, how could you get it to the right mm -hmm. people at the right time? Do you believe, well, the world and the United States will be ready 
for the enormous logistical challenge, at least in the United States, of trying to vaccinate 350 million people? Very good question. And what I can tell you is people around the world are working around the clock seven days a week to make sure that every country is ready when the vaccine becomes available. And the Task Force for Global Health, uh, we work very closely with CDC and WHO. Uh, actually, we have a program where we introduce influenza vaccine into countries, lower income and middle income countries, and we're using that same basic structure to uh, help these countries prepare for the COVID vaccine when it's available. But the plan is to have all the countries ready to go and to have the vaccine able to be distributed and uh, used properly and safety monitored uh, properly uh, once the vaccine or vaccines are available. Does that answer your question, Kevin? All right, let's... A bit of a follow-up, though. I mean, as someone who's got some experience in this, um, what kinds of things could go wrong? I mean, I, I know that we're, we're oh. hopeful, but, but, I mean, do we really have every little thing that it takes? Because I was just surprised when, when the pandemic first happened and people couldn't get masks. It seemed like it's such a simple thing. But what could go wrong? Okay. So, yeah, I don't know on the math side. I, I can't comment. But what I can say is, uh, in terms of things that went right, within 10 weeks of knowing the sequence of the genetic sequence of this virus, we had a vaccine in the clinic uh, uh, that was the Moderna vaccine. So, I mean, that is like unprecedented. Uh, but what can go wrong? I mean, vaccine development and is fraught with, uh, um, uh, you know, issues with the vaccine doesn't uh, work effectively enough. It's not safe. Uh, and that's why most vaccines don't make it. Uh, but uh, one of the other things we need to keep in mind here is that this virus is related to SARS and MERS. Uh, there are other coronaviruses. And when the vaccines were evaluated in animals uh, in part of the development for SARS and MERS, they found that animals that were vaccinated and then infected actually had enhanced disease. So that's one of the things that uh, our group, the Brighton Collaboration at the Task Force Global Health, has been working with researchers around the world to uh, see that, uh, evaluate the potential for the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine uh, to whether or not it will have that potential. So there are lots of things that can go wrong, but what I can tell you is we have people uh, thinking about this morning, noon, and night, about what are all the possibilities, making sure we have systems in place. Let's do this. Let's get to a break. Uh, our first break of the show, when we come back, we'll talk more uh, with uh, Dr. Harry Hyman and Dr. Mark McKinley and Kevin Riley. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Kevin Riley, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, journalists and others have been doing since the start of the coronavirus uh, pandemic is to hearken back to the uh, uh, virus of 1918, what became known as the Spanish flu. Um, but what's interesting about it is, as I was reading various newspapers this morning, I suddenly came across figures on the flu epidemic of 1968 in, in 1969, which became known colloquially as the Hong Kong flu. And it I, it's funny, I was a, in college at the time. Uh, I don't really have much recollection of Hong Kong flu in any significant way. Uh, I read on the CDC website that it may have killed as many as 100,000 Americans. That's a lot. I've seen other figures elsewhere that it was more like 30,000. In either case, it's not very good. And then I look and see that in 1957 and 1958, uh, we had another significant a flu that ran through primarily children, a, pand- a wave of influenza uh, that may have uh, killed tens of thousands of Americans. Um, so, Kevin, I'm f- interested in the fact that we have seen pandemics that uh, we haven't paid as much attention to. Um, I-, I-, I don't know that there's a lot to say about them, except that I'm f- I'm interested that I, I, I don't put this pandemic in the context of those. Kevin? Yeah, Bill, I, I thought I'd been trying to catch up on those things, too, uh, for a couple of reasons. I, I was interested in the 1918 flu in particular because, oddly, I had a summer job in college at a cemetery, and one of my responsibilities was cutting the grass in an area of the cemetery that had been set aside for infants that died during that pandemic. And I, I learned a lot about the flu because I was just curious about that. And then in that 68 uh, uh, epidemic, I can recall as a young boy, I would have been about six at the time, standing in a long line with my parents to, to get vaccinated. And there was this worry about getting sick. And I didn't quite understand it at the time. I think there are a couple of things going on this time. The first is that we had gotten so used as a country to not really having to worry about these things. We would have occasional scares, CDC would step in, smart people would figure out how to eradicate it. Second is, I think just all of the divisiveness in our politics and in our media now has made it more of something that that seems like we're not all in the same spot. We're not all fighting this together, despite what people say that uh, politics and your point of view can uh, really have an impact on how you see this. Dr. McKinley, um, thinking back to those uh, previous uh, pandemics, um, how does what we're dealing with now differ from those? Or should we understand from that that people in your line of work have to always be prepared for the potential of the next pandemic, whatever it may be? Absolutely. That last point is key. We do need to prepare because this isn't going to be the last one. Uh, but one of the couple of thoughts as I was hearing Kevin's excellent points he was making there about influenza. I mean, every year flu kills many, many people. People don't think of flu. They think of it, oh, it's just a, a respiratory infection. But 
every year it kills a lot of people. And that's the reason why it's so important to be vaccinated. Uh, one of the things though about this virus is its transmissibility, which is greater than influenza. Um, and uh, maybe Dr. Harmon can comment on that, but uh, uh, generally that's one of the things here that's sort of unusual about this. But just stepping back again, I think influenza is underrated as a very uh, serious infection. And this coming fall, when this virus runs, uh, is circulating at the same time as influenza, it's going to be even more reason that people need to be vaccinated against flu. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we've um, kind of lost sight of the um, impact uh, of infectious diseases, especially in the U.S., where um, many more people generally die of chronic disease, uh, whether it be diabetes or heart disease uh, or, or chronic lung disease um, than, than infectious disease. And we've kind of taken um, vaccinations for granted, uh, which was in part why last spring we saw uh, a resurgence of measles uh, and other vaccines uh, because of a lot of mis and disinformation uh, about the critical importance of, of vaccines and protecting the population. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight another point that Kevin made though that I thought uh, what was really critical when he was talking about the um, the the flu epidemic in the in the in the in the um, in, in the in the 50s and and earlier uh, about how quote CDC would step in. And a lot of smart people would 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 help take care of the problem. Um, and I think what's what's stunning, uh, and not stunning in a positive sense, but stunning in a in a in a frightening sense, um, is that uh, CDC has been um, absent um, in most of the ways we need them to be front center and present. Um, and from my perspective, our federal public health agency who has for decades not only been responding to um, epidemics uh, in the U.S. and across the world, has essentially been sidelined uh, in taking on that role in this pandemic, which is why we have this really piecemeal approach uh, to managing a national problem uh, at, the, at the country level. Uh, and that's also um, kind of reflected in the, in, in, in the piecemeal approach we as a state are taking. And I think that we're, we're paying for that. Okay, I want to talk about uh, WHO and CDC uh, in more uh, depth in a few minutes. But but before we go there, uh, Dr. Hyman, uh, I'll start with you on this. Um, again, I want to go to a real pragmatic, practical level on all of this. Uh, the state's opened up. Uh, you can now uh, go to the mall if you want to. We know you can go bowling. Uh, we know you can go get your hair cut, all that sort of thing. I, I want to ask you, Dr. Hyman, as a public health professional, uh, where are you going these days? How freely do you now go out into the world around you? That's question one. And question two is the CDC the other day issued a new advisory saying that uh, they don't think that the coronavirus really does, in fact, live on surfaces the way they had that many public health uh, scientists had first thought. So perhaps the long process that we've taken in my family to wipe down groceries as they come into the house isn't necessary. What are some of the practical ways in which this is affecting your world right now that people who are listening to the show might, might hear and take to heart? Well, just to be clear, um, I have many le levels of privilege and protection. Um, I, I can work from my home. 
uh, behind my computer. Uh, you know, I, I teach at the School of Public Health at Georgia State. I can do virtually everything I need to do um, virtually. Um, you know, I, I go to the grocery store at seven in the morning. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, it's the first time in my life I've celebrated being over 60, so I can get in and out uh, when there's literally <laughs> half a dozen people there um, with, with appropriate mask and, 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 and hand washing. Um, we will do a, a little bit of, of takeout if, if when we walk up to the takeout, it, it appears safe and I can maintain social distance. Um, other than that, I'm not. Oh, oh and um, before eight in the morning, I get out and run. Um, the, the, the belt line is actually um, relatively sparse in terms of number of people before eight in the morning. Um, after about eight, eight thirty, uh, it gets it gets too congested. Um, so I, I am still practicing and preaching. Um, to as many people as I can to continue to take this seriously because we absolutely know there continues to be community spread. We absolutely know that there are many people out there who feel fine, who are either asymptomatic without symptoms, but they have the virus, or pre-symptomatic, meaning they have it, but their symptoms haven't started and they're still spreading it. Um, so that's my, 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 my personal practice and the recommendation I make to anyone who wants to hear it. Dr. McKinley, I, first of all, we should point out that Dr. Hyman was very clear about an issue that matters a great deal to him. He talked about the privilege that many of us have uh, uh, to work out of our homes. We are not, uh, you know, in, in jobs. We're fortunately, many of us at, uh, have incomes that allow us to do that, have professions that allow us to do that. Uh, but he is always mindful of all those people out there, people who are bringing groceries to those who are getting delivery, the sanitation workers, who are, all the people who unfortunately have to continue to work out in the community, which is another reason we have this disproportionate number of African-Americans and other minorities affected by the virus. All right, that said, uh, in your world, Dr. McKinley, how are you, so that listeners can understand your approach, how are you handling your day-in and day-out life being mindful of the virus? Okay. Uh, before I get to that, I just want to comment on the surface, the risk of surface transmission. Oh, uh, yeah. Please the do. The point there Please is do. that it's the relative risk. It's not that there's no risk. I would still be careful of touching things, uh, but it, the relative risk is less than uh, the droplets that uh, come from a cough or a sneeze. But in my world, okay. again, uh, although I happen to be uh, privileged to be able to work from home, and the Task Force for Global Health is going to be working from home at least through June. Uh, uh, I, my wife and I take a walk uh, every evening in, in Decatur, and it's uh, really interesting to see how people, uh, if you're coming on the sidewalk, somebody goes on the street, and everyone's highly respectful of each other so that no one gets close to each other. Um, I also go grocery shopping, at, uh, like Dr. Hyman was saying, and the first time I was wondering, why are all these older people here? What am I? And then I realized I'm one of those older people. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's uh, quite a, a different experience. Obviously, can't go to restaurants and do some things that uh, we're fortunate to be able to do in the past. But uh, I, I'm just thankful that to be a part of um, uh, trying to make a difference here uh, with this uh, uh, disease. Uh, I can appreciate uh, Dr. McKinley's uh, 
point of view that, you know, there's no absolute uh, certainty about a lot of things with this virus. I mean, we've actually had questions about uh, where people have been concerned about whether the newspaper delivered to their house is absolutely safe. And and, and we have said, look, you know, the guidance from the experts is that the risk is is absolutely minimal, but there's no such thing as 100 percent, of course. Uh, and we have offered people the chance to read it electronically if they prefer. So, I mean, I think we're all dealing with that, um, and we want absolute assurances on, on things. We want to be able to be um, right about it, and, and that's part of why we see this variance in, uh, in people's behavior and even among people we know well who see this differently. I'm, I'm still surprised. I'm the designated grocery shopper in our family, and I um, am still surprised at times when I'm in a grocery store and so many people don't wear masks. It's such a minor, simple thing to do. The guidance on doing that and it, the benefits of doing that is, is so clear, but still people don't do it. So um, it's just as we all figure out where we are in this thing, it, it becomes a lot of personal choices that affect others. All right, Kevin Riley, you get the last word on this segment. We're going to take a final break, and we want, I want to come back, and I want to talk about a subject that Dr. Hyman brought up a little while ago, and uh, uh, we should expand upon it, and that's what is happening to the role of CDC and the World Health Organization uh, as the virus continues. You're listening to Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, is with me for today's Political Rewind, as he is on Thursdays. Uh, Dr. Mark McKinley, who is the director for the Center of Vaccine Equity at the Task Force for Global Health, and Dr. Harry Hyman, clinical associate professor in the Division of Health Management and Policy at the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. I'm really appreciative that you're all uh, here today. Dr. McKinley, let me start with you on this, if I may. The, uh, the Task Force for Global Health is a sweeping, truly global organization. You are working, uh, in many cases, on neglected tropical diseases. You are working to bring pharmaceuticals to people in countries that are in desperate need of them. I'm particularly familiar with the work you do in trachoma, but you're in mostly in Ethiopia, but you're so much larger in that, than that. You have um, you're training epidemiologists. Uh, you're working on uh, training people in terms of contact tracing, medical supplies and equipment, your specialty vaccine developments. My point is you're all over the place. And that means that you work extensively with the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control. So with that in mind, when you see the way in which, as Dr. Hyman said earlier, CDC has been marginalized, what do you think, and talk about WHO as well, what do you think we lose when, when we politically marginalize an organization like CDC in the midst of a pandemic? This is one of the things that bothered me more than pretty much anything else I've seen with the um, uh, this whole situation that's happened with CDC and WHO. In my experience, and working very closely with both organizations, they're made up of the most selfless, caring public health experts, uh, people who devote their entire lives to protecting the population. Now, not everything goes perfectly all the time, and especially given the complexity of the work, but that does not take away from the critical role these organizations play every day. 
So I think it is a huge mistake and a huge uh, disservice to not uh, uh, involve these folks much more uh, because they are the experts and they are the ones that are going to help us get through this. Uh, Dr. Hyman, um, CDC did early on, uh, you know, make some uh, embarrassing mistakes. They delivered test kits that turned out to uh, be uh, ineffective. And uh, worse than that were, um, uh, well, they just couldn't be used. Um, And so that started leading us down this path of thinking that somehow they didn't really have the uh, ability to handle this thing uh, in the best way possible. Uh, How did that affect uh, CDC? Yeah, I I would actually argue that point, Bill. I don't don't think that was the critical point where where anyone in the administration um, had concerns about the CDC's ability to um, manage this pandemic. Um, I I, I think the critical point occurred um, when the most qualified people at CDC started uh, speaking um, clearly, uh, honestly, and openly about what we were facing. And I'm talking specifically about early on in the pandemic when President Trump was in India um, and uh, Dr. Nancy um, Messonnier uh, from the National Center of Immunization and Respiratory Diseases said very clearly at a press conference that this is a pandemic that will be unprecedented and will change our lives in ways that we can't imagine, that she had started um, sharing that um, with her own children, that, that things were going to be very different. Um, I, I think that, that she and, and Dr. Ann Chuhat, the deputy director, uh, are probably the two most qualified people in the country to, to lead our response to the pandemic. Um, but I think, candidly, that we have an administration that doesn't want to tell things in a um, clear and transparent way, uh, and they want to control the message um, and the messaging. And, and candidly, I think we're seeing the same thing happen um, at the state level um, with the, the back and forth between the governor uh, and Commissioner Toomey. And, and I think um, we all suffer as a result of it. You know, another thing about the, the issues with the CDC, it, it, just looking, you know, through it as an Atlantan, is that uh, it is one of the most prestigious and important organizations in Atlanta. And there are many people who work there, and it draws many people, uh, and it has made Atlanta a center for global health. So as a practical matter, we would never want to see, as Atlantans, the CDC lose uh, the stature that it has spent all these years gaining. And to me, Bill, that, that's, a, that's a big concern, because um, if it becomes overly politicized or for some reason uh, – is not allowed to share its expertise. Um, it, you know, a couple of Sundays ago, we did a full page uh, on our editorial page, which included a piece from Bill Fagey, who you mentioned earlier, about how important it is for the CDC to be heard and understood and supported. Yeah, I'm actually... So, uh, Dr. McKinley, I'll... Go ahead, Dr. No, no I was just going to say, uh, while, while I absolutely appreciate the, the local impact of Atlanta... Um, I'm, I'm much more concerned about the national impact and the global impact of, of marginalizing our, our premier public health uh, agency. Okay, well, with that in mind, uh, Dr. McKinley, since, uh, uh, since the task force does work so closely with CDC on so many issues, I, I guess my question is, 
Although we know that CDC has been sidelined in terms of being spokes uh, between the organ, being the organization that really speaks to the public about uh, the virus uh, by the White House, uh, has CDC's work on the virus in any way been diminished, or is the real issue that they haven't been allowed to uh, be the public uh, forum for talking about it? It's the latter. They are working 24-7, I can tell you, uh, in various groups across the CDC on this. Uh, so, no, nothing has slowed down there at all. So that's the good news. But just their voice is not being heard. Well, and, and I guess I would, I would add to this, and, 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 and Dr. McKinley, please you know, correct me if, you're, if your understanding or experience is, is different, but, but I think we saw a pretty stunning example just a couple weeks ago when, when the CDC was ready to release guidelines for safe reopening of businesses, uh, and the original version uh, was shelved um, by the administration uh, and resubmitted, and, and, and what was ultimately re-released um, had, had a lot of qualifying language that the original document didn't, um, you know. And unfortunately, qualifying language around guidelines creates a lot of, um, uh, of confusion. So, so, so I think we're, we're seeing ways that they're not, not only is, is, there, is, the, is their work being pushed behind the curtain, but, but, but it's also the, the guidelines and other things are being watered down in, in ways that will have important public health implications. The other thing that I think that that's created, uh, you know, Dr. Hyman and Dr. McKinley, is um, as public officials have made decisions, you know, in other words, politicians we've elected have made decisions about what they're going to do, instead of it being crystal clear to the public that science and, uh, supports the decision or experts have endorsed the decision. We've been through this period where not only you know are the statistics unreliable or unclear, but the public you know is confused and loses faith. I mean, it's we we are going to hear from our governor today at four, and I really hope that whatever he decides to do, he can point to numbers and to authentic expertise that says this is why I'm doing this and this is why it makes sense because. It scares and confuses people when they don't do that. I, Kevin Riley, uh, I was going to ask Dr. Hyman and Dr. McKinley to comment on what you just said, but we're out of time for today's show completely. So we'll just leave it with your comment and say that people should uh, listen to what the governor has to say at four today. As I said, we'll carry it on GPB radio and our social media platforms. In the meantime, Dr. Hyman, it's really a pleasure to have you back with us today. Dr. McKinley, thank you so much for joining us. You'd be welcome to come back to continue this conversation as we move ahead. Thank you both very much. Kevin Riley, uh, same to you. Uh, take care. All of you out there, uh, as I leave you today, please take care and stay healthy. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow when we're back to talking politics. <laughs>